If we could make our way back to our seats, um, remain standing for this morning's reading of God's Word. And if you'll bow your heads with me and we'll pray before we read. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you prepare our hearts and open our minds. Give us, Lord, a teachable spirit that is receptive to all that you would have us learn today, and may we leave here with a better understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We are reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And this is the word of the Lord. some really incredible things that happen in today's scripture passage. I, I can't even get started without sharing with you something that comes to my mind with this uh, passage, which I have taught numerous times in the context of a Christian school. Uh, several different Christian schools, I've taught this passage, and what I usually do is I find a stuffed animal uh, that, that's uh, in one of my children's bedrooms. It's about half the size of me. And I strap that thing to a board, that stuffed animal, and then I will have some volunteers, some uh, children, 
Uh, I've done it here. Uh, if you all look at that little opening in the window back there in the top floor, and I'll have them lower this stuffed animal on a pallet, on a piece of plywood down into the sanctuary just to give us an image. And, you know, they see Snoopy coming down and everybody kind of goes crazy. It's this big dog. And, but it, it just gives a picture of how absolutely determined and crazy and beautiful it was for these four guys to get this paralytic to Jesus that has been he- who has been healing people all over the place. Tremendous things occur in this passage, and that actually is not the most important and the most emphatic one. So let's get into the passage today. We're going to begin at looking at verses 1 through 5. Hope you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2 where we just read. And let's begin looking at verses 1 through 5. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard he had come home. Let's stop here for a second. So he came home. Now, we know his home was, was Nazareth, right? Where, his, where, where he was from, where his parents were from. Jesus of Nazareth, he's from Nazareth which is about 20 miles away, but he's in Capernaum now. At the beginning here of chapter 2, when it says a few days later, we're talking now a few days after he has finished his journey all around the Sea of Galilee. He has gone around all these different fishing villages, preaching the gospel, preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, and now he is back home. We have to stop here. I had to stop here. I mean, you have to listen to me, right? I'm going to make us stop here. What does it mean this is his home? I think what Mark wants us to see, what the Holy Spirit wants us to see here, is that the base camp of operations for Jesus at Peter's mother-in-law's home in Capernaum has become his home. His relationships with those disciples that he has called, they have become the dominant relationships in his life. Not to diminish his physical family, but his spiritual family has become the primary relationships in his life. And Capernaum is his home. Is that cool? At least two of you think that's cool. (laughs) The reason I'm getting excited about this is because God wants us, no matter how beautiful or how dysfunctional your physical family is, God wants our church and every church to be a family, to be home. And for us to have relationships, redemptive friendships with one another, where, where, where our friendships and relationships with one another, which happen often in our small group settings or in our men's and women's Bible studies, that becomes our home. How many of you have experienced, whether it's this church or some other church, where your church family becomes your home? I've experienced that. It's my home. That's verse 1. He's traveled around. Those of you that have been gone the last few weeks, he's been traveling around Galilee, preaching the gospel. Mark hardly tells us anything about this journey, whether it's been days or weeks or months. He doesn't tell us. What he tells us is a snapshot of that journey is where he heals the man with leprosy. That's what we looked at last week. So now he's back home in Capernaum. Verse 2, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word, the logos to them. 
Jesus' primary mission here is to preach the gospel and the good news and travel about doing it. He's back home in Capernaum and he's doing it there. We should notice in verse 2 that there is an increasing crowd presence around him. Mark is showing us that the authority and the magnetism of Jesus throughout this gospel, it is growing and growing and growing. There's so many now. He's already been in this home and everybody came after the sunset, after Sabbath. We looked at that in chapter 1. Now he's there again and there's so many that not even outside the door is there any room. Verse 3. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Such a beautiful picture. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And digging through it, roofs in those days being made of dirt and compacted soil, digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, notice the plural pronoun there, when he saw their faith, including these four guys, I think it's also including the man on the mat. But when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now at this point, I think as a reader, we're supposed to be a little surprised. Why did they dig the hole in the roof? They didn't dig the hole in the roof to get his sins forgiven. I don't think, right? They dug the hole in the roof for him to receive the healing that so many others had healed, been, had received. So the reader of Mark's gospel here should, should take pause. He saw their faith. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I think there would have been surprise in that setting right there at this moment. So I'm calling this the, the invisible miracle here. And the invisible miracle is righteousness by faith. He saw their faith and their sins are forgiven. Now this took place, some of you have been gone, you saw, some of you saw this last week, I've had this slide up here. This took place in Capernaum, a few of you have been here. This is the spot, most likely archaeologists tell us where was Jesus' home, spiritually speaking, Capernaum. The home was underneath this 5th century church, you can see the ruins there. Uh, on the bottom, and then you have a church that I call a Star Trek church that's built in the 1990s over this archaeological site of the 5th century church that's over where Peter's mother-in-law lived. It is a cool place to visit. It is where Jesus is doing this work in Mark chapter 2. It is the place that Mark describes as his home. Back to this surprise, son, your sins are forgiven. I think this should be a surprise for the reader. He saw their faith. Jesus is is letting us see here that salvation is by faith and the most important invisible, invisible miracle is righteousness by faith. And this is not really that new of a teaching. It goes back to the Old Testament. We are saved by faith. We are declared to be righteous by faith. Abraham, it was credited to him by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2 in Galatians 3. He says, Now that no one is justified by the law 
before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. So the first miracle in this passage is the invisible miracle of the forgiveness of sins that has taken place by the faith of those who carried this man and the faith of the paralytic to Jesus. We are not saved by what we do. It is important for us to get alone and spend time with God in prayer, but we are not saved by that. It is important for us to gather for the preaching of the Word and the singing of His praises and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But we are not saved by that. It it is important to be in God's Word each day, but we are not saved by that. We are saved by faith. It is the invisible miracle. It is the emphasis of this section in Mark 2. That faith transforms lives. And it continues to transform lives uh, today. Uh, I I heard some testimonies in an unusual place uh, this last week in front of the television about the transforming power of the gospel followed by faith in Christ. Uh, Any of you like me, have you spent a little more time in front of the TV the last week? I I, I saw some of those nods. Olympics. Olympics. For those of you that are like, what is he talking about? A few of you don't have TVs. The Olympics are going on, for those of you that are unplugged. And, and, uh, and it's, been aw- it's been awesome. Has it been fun? It has been fun watching the Olympics. But one of the highlights for me were two men. This is not a sport I follow a whole lot. Synchronized diving. Okay? Synchronized diving. Um, I'm, I'm out of step here, so... We'll, we'll skip over that and come back. I've already said that. The, the, uh, the guys that got the silver medal, uh, David uh, Budia and Steele Johnson, uh, how many of you heard them after their, after their dive? You know, uh, again, I'm not normally following this sport, but right after their event, you know, the sprinters are still breathing really heavy and they're like trying to interview them and they're like, oh, how'd you feel during that run? <gasps> You know, the, the divers, they don't have that problem. You know, they haven't been sprinting uh, for 400 meters around the track. And so they ask them some, some questions, uh, ask these guys uh, what it meant. And, and I, this is what they said right after their dive. They won the silver medal, David Budia. He says, yeah, I just think the past week of these Olympics, there's been an enormous amount of pressure and I've felt it. You know, it's just an identity crisis. When my mind is on this, on, on diving, on getting a medal, thinking I'm defined by this, by getting this silver medal, then my mind goes crazy. But when we both know our identity, we both know our identity is in Christ. And then his, his partner goes on. He says, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace. It gave me ease and it let me enjoy the contest. If, if something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still find joy because I'm at the Olympics competing with the best person, the best mentor, just one of the best people to be around. So God's given us a cool opportunity. That's a good way to describe the Olympics. So God's given us a cool opportunity and I'm glad I could have come away with an Olympic silver medal in my first ever event. Salvation is by faith. And when we are saved by faith, God the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and He begins to transform us and He begins to transform our identity. 
And how awesome it is to hear these guys. They're like a Paul and Timothy. The one partner is the older one. He's mentoring and discipling spiritually. The other one as well as, as, as in diving. And there is, there is this beautiful fruit that comes from salvation that is by faith, this invisible miracle, righteousness by faith. This is the emphasis of this passage. But let's come back to it now and look what happens. There's always critics. There's always antagonistic people. And we've got them in, in this setting, in this home in Capernaum. Verse 6 and 7. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So these are the Bible guys, the teachers of the law, the scribes. They know the Scriptures. And they know the Scriptures that only God can forgive sins. They know passages like Isaiah 43. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Only the I am, only God can forgive sins. And so in verses 6 and 7, these scribes, these teachers of the law, notice they're thinking to themselves. Mark is what uh, literary folks would call an omniscient narrator. We, We know the thoughts of these guys in the room and we know their thoughts because Jesus knows their thoughts. We're going to see that in just a moment and that's been communicated to Mark, and under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's recorded the thoughts of these Bible guys, the pastors, if you will, of that day, the, the, the seminary professors of that day, and they are critical of what is going on. They are thinking, only God can forgive sins, and this is contrary to Scripture. What is going on here? A man can't do this. And so they are, I'm calling the invisible skeptics. We have the invisible Miracle, and we have the invisible skeptics. They're invisible because they haven't even said anything. This is just what they're thinking in the room. And they're thinking God is not a human being. So what is going on here is blasphemy. They are falling into a fallacy that that many of us uh, fall prey to that logicians or philosophers call uh, the the fallacy of, of wishful thinking. And it goes like this, I want X to be true. And therefore, X is true. I, I want it to be true. And they, they, they want this ingrained theology within them that God is not a person, a place, or a thing. When we attribute divine status to a person or a place of thing or a thing, that is called idolatry. And so this guy is blaspheming, is what they're saying. They want to believe this. They have read their Bibles, but they have not actually read their Bibles properly and rightly. We'll come to that in a moment, how they haven't read it properly and rightly. But I have to, I've told many of you were here last summer, I told this story last summer, but this same theological error is very present and alive and well today. And again, as I'm reading this passage this week, I thought about last summer, we had the great blessing to go to the island of Kauai. And this sounds like a joke. But here I am, a Protestant pastor, on the beach, alone early in the morning, reading my Bible, and up walks a Jewish rabbi on the beach. This sounds like a joke. A a Protestant pastor and a rabbi are on the beach in in Kauai. This happened. No one's out there. I shot a picture of him. This is the guy. I'm sitting there in my little beach chair, reading my Bible on my iPad, and he comes up. 
And uh, many of you heard this story. Is it okay if I tell it again? You've heard this story. So this guy comes up, and I'm just, I'm like, okay. And he's fishing. (laughs) I knew he wasn't going to catch a fish. He was not a fisherman. But he was fishing. And so, long story short, we end up talking for about an hour or an hour and a half. And what, what do we end up talking about? We end up talking about him saying, Christianity cannot be true because God cannot be a person. That is idolatry. It is blasphemous. He was trying to be respectful, but he's basically, he was basically calling me, and he was calling me an idolater and a blasphemer once we got on terms where he could actually say that. He said it with kindness, but he was calling me an idolater and a blasphemer. So what did we do? We spent a lot of time talking about the Trinity and how the Godhead, the God that we worship, theologians use this term, the Godhead is three persons but one. And it would be blasphemy for, for Jesus to say he's forgiving sins if Jesus wasn't God, but he was God, and it is not idolatry for anyone else to say this. It would be, but not for Jesus. And so I had this lengthy conversation with him. And again, I've, I've, I say this, this kind of story a, a lot. I would like to say that you know he got down on his knees and he accepted the Lord Jesus, but that's not what happened. But we had a very lengthy conversation and where I, I was just asking God the whole time to, to lovingly help me explain a theology of the Trinity from the scriptures, from the Hebrew scriptures. And we had a fascinating conversation. So this is the same thing that's going on in that room in Capernaum, that same theology. So we have the, uh, the uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing track here of, of where I am. Let's turn, turn the page. Let's go back to the text here. Let's look at Jesus' response to these thoughts of the rabbis, the scribes, the teachers of the law who are thinking these things. Look at verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. Okay, so that tells the reader something. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is divine. He knows what they are thinking. And incidentally, he knows what you and I are thinking. He knows our thoughts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. I think that everyone includes the scribes now. They are amazed at what they just saw happen. The invisible miracle they weren't buying. But the visible visible one amazed everyone there. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So this miracle that we have, this visible miracle, unlike last week's passage where Jesus is moved, verse 41 says he was filled with compassion and he healed the paralytic. We have a very different motivation for this healing in this passage. I I believe Jesus is still compassionate just in this passage, just right that Mark is placed right next to here. But the motivation here is to validate the invisible miracle of the forgiveness of sins because of the doubts of the scribes in the room. 
So, Jesus says this, knowing what they're thinking. God is omniscient. And he says to them, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up your, take up your mat and walk. And different people understand, interpret this differently, but I think the way to take this, the way to interpret this is what is easier to say is your sins are forgiven. I, I could say that. Your sins are forgiven. I forgive your sins. There's no way for you to validate whether that's actually true or not, whether that's happened. But if I'm going to say to a paralytic, to a quadriplegic, get up, take your wheelchair, and walk home, that's pretty, that's pretty verifiable. Are you with me, church? I mean, that's pretty verifiable. So the easier thing to say is your, forgins are, your sins are forgiven. So back to this commentator now. This commentator says this. He says, to give verifiable evidence of the invisible effectiveness of the easier statement, easier statement being your sins are forgiven, and thus to belittle his silent accusers, to judge them, as it were, to get them to turn from that. Jesus will proceed to say the less easy thing. Rise and take up the pallet of yours and walk. Rise might have sufficed. The adding of take up the pallet of yours and walk amplifies the demonstration of Jesus' power. So we see the omniscience of Jesus here. We see the, the all-powerfulness of Jesus here. He has casted out demons. He has healed a leper. And now he has healed a paralytic. But now back to, I said we'll come back to this Old Testament part and how the, the, this rabbi on the beach in Kauai and the rabbis in the room in Capernaum have not rightly understood all of the Hebrew Scriptures. They've understood what idolatry is, and they're mostly right, with the exception of the Messiah of the Son of God. Look at verse 10. Jesus, in his response, says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The emphasis here, I've got Son of Man circled in my Bible. This is the first occurrence of this phrase in Mark's Gospel, and it is the phrase that Jesus uses to describe himself, not only in Mark's Gospel, but in the other Gospels. Pretty much every single time in the Gospels that this phrase is used, Jesus is using it to describe himself. Mark 1.1, Mark describes him as the Son of God, but now he has described himself as the Son of Man. Now, if you get out your Bible software and you type in Son of Man, you'll find this coming up in the Old Testament, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, screen after screen after screen, I didn't count them, of, of Son of Man in the Old Testament. And most of those occurrences, Son of Man is referring to simply a human being. But look at this. This is the reference that Jesus is thinking of in Daniel chapter 7. Of Son of Man. This is what Jesus is thinking of when he says this. In my vision at night, Daniel prophesies centuries before Christ. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Not son of man, just a human being, but, but something like a son of man. He was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Who do men worship? They worship God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is saying, you didn't read Daniel 7. I've been traveling all around preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. I've healed lepers. He's going to raise the dead. 
he, he just healed a paralytic. He's, about the, he's in the process here of healing the paralytic. If I weren't so confused, I'd know where we are. He's about to do it. The Old Testament testifies to God being one essence in three persons and the Messiah, Jesus, being the Son of Man, being divine, being worshipped. Is this awesome? This is what Jesus is saying. He heals the paralytic. Not in this passage. We don't have textual evidence in this passage that it's because of the compassion that's in Jesus, although we know he has that compassion. He heals the paralytic. He does the visible miracle to verify and validate the invisible miracle that has taken place in every believer's life. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. So we have the invisible miracle, which is righteousness by faith in verses 1 through 5. We have the invisible skeptics, these guys who are thinking, this, this guy can't do this, he's a blasphemer. And now we have the visible miracle that you may know that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that Jesus is the Son of God, that you might have faith in me. I have done this. I've taken, and we'd use the term quadriplegic, and I've had him take his mat and walk and go. And everyone there saw this happen, including the scribes. The amazing thing as we move through Mark's gospel and the other gospels is that most of the scribes, most of the Pharisees, after seeing these things and being amazed, they don't believe in him. But he is calling you and me and even rabbis who live in Los Angeles who vacation in Kauai to believe in Jesus as the Son of Man who came centuries after Daniel prophesied it. And Jesus takes that title and says, I am, I am the one. Remember Daniel said, like a Son of Man, all this, that's me. You should know that by what I have done in this room today in Capernaum. So a couple questions as we, as we uh, finish up. A couple questions. So a critic might say this to you or to me. Why, Mike, why, you, are you a Christian when you've never seen a visible miracle like the healing of a paralytic? And now maybe you have. So, I'm, so let me just put myself here. I've never seen something like this happen. What happened in Capernaum, and I believe it happened. I've never seen anything with my eyes. I could spend an hour answering that question, but let me just spend a few minutes answering that, that, that question. I've never seen anything like this. And so a critic out there, or even a critic with inside my soul, would say to me, why do you believe this? Why do you believe any of this? We, we, we've known people who are paraplegics or quadriplegics personally. We know famous people. FDR, and want his picture taken, but he was that way. The irony, the man who played Superman, Christopher Reeve, was that way. Never seen anyone experience throwing away their chair and walking home. I've never seen that. 
one of the most brilliant men alive today. Stephen Hawking, never seen him or anyone like him. One of our own sisters in Christ, Johnny Erickson Todd, I've never seen that. So, so why are you a Christian when you've never seen a visible miracle like the healing of a paralytic? All right, so should we stand for a benediction? So let me say a few things here to respond to that. First is, as we study the scriptures, we see that miracles of healing and and these kind of just front page miracles, things that would, would be on the headline of the newspaper if they existed in that day, those kinds of miracles are concentrated in certain periods of salvation history. If you study the Bible, you will observe this. They're not restricted there. They're concentrated there. So in periods like the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan and the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, and of course in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. So there is a pattern, historically speaking, if we understand the scriptures to be history, which I do, There's a pattern where God does extraordinary and unusual and uncommon and miraculous things when He is about to do something new with His people. So that's one of my responses, that it is not normal to see someone like Johnny Erickson Tata throw her wheelchair away and walk home. For that to be normal is not an expectation of the Bible or of a Christian. Are you with me? We, we know that even from this passage. The very last thing in, the, in, in this section. We have never seen anything like this. This wasn't routine. What happened? It was extraordinary. Because Jesus is about to die and be raised. And the Holy Spirit is about to come at Pentecost. And Jesus is validating the greater miracle which I do see today. In my own life and in yours, the forgiveness of sins by faith and the transformation of a human life, the greater invisible miracle I see all over the place. But my faith is not shaken that I have never seen something like this. And maybe you have, and I'm not saying God can't do that. I believe He can do that. I'm just telling you, I haven't seen that happen. I think that's, is that enough? I think that's enough. Okay, one more thing. Thank you. One more thing. I knew somebody would want more. Some of you want coffee and, and to go on to lunch. Some of you want more. So let me give you one more thing. So here's another reason why my faith isn't shaken because I haven't seen a visible miracle like this. John fourteen twelve. Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Some of you might think this is the last passage you should be going to right now. But no, if we understand what he means by greater things than these, this confirms that seeing people throw aside their wheelchairs and walk home is not a normal part of Christian life. It could happen. God could do it. But what is a normal part of the existence of the church is the spreading of the gospel and this invisible miracle changing lives. And that's what Jesus is referring to in John 14 when he says, you you are going to do even greater things than these. 
The world is going to be changed. Cultures are going to be changed. People's lives are going to be changed by the power of the gospel. And that extent is going to be far greater than anything I did during my ministry. One commentator writes on this, on this passage in John, these works are greater not because they are more amazing miracles, but because they will be greater in their worldwide scope and will result in the transformation of individual lives and whole cultures and societies. And again, another commentator, Leon Morris, he says, what Jesus means we may see in the narratives of the Acts. There, there are a few miracles of healing. They're there. But the emphasis is on the mighty works of conversion. On the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to the little band of believers than throughout Christ's entire earthly life. There we see a literal fulfillment of greater works than these shall he do. During his lifetime, the Son of God was confined confined in his influence to a comparatively small sector of Palestine. So that, I think, is enough for that. Why are you a Christian when you have never seen a visible miracle like the healing of a paralytic? Some of us will be able to see some of, something like that, but many of us won't. And we shouldn't be surprised if we don't. A careful reading of the scriptures is, is harmonious with that kind of thinking. All right. Well, I'm going to finish up now. The last thing I want to finish up with is a question for us. And the question, you saw it on the screen already, those of you that looked up there at the beginning. And that is, who is your paralytic? We shouldn't leave this passage without thinking about the hearts, the love of the four guys who carried this man to the roof, dug through it, and lowered him to get him to Jesus. They had faith in Jesus. What exactly their theology was, what exactly they believed, I don't know, but it was sufficient to get their friend to Jesus. And what God is looking for in you and me is to fulfill His mission of making disciples and to get our family members and our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors to Jesus. So as I close in prayer, I want us to be thinking of names. Who is your paralytic? This is what I mean. Do you understand what I mean, church? Are you with me? So I'm praying for myself now, too. Uh, Last thing I'll I'll share with you is, you know, we're, we're in a hurry a lot. Are you in a hurry? I'm in a hurry a lot. Mountain biking, you know, hasn't crept into this sermon yet, so let me get it in here real quick. So... I'm coming up the hill Friday night, right around sunset. And I want to push it, and I love climbing, and I want to get to the top of this hill. And here's a guy that I've seen for just very brief segments, literally like 60 seconds, but I've been seeing him for like 20, almost 20 years out on the trail, this guy. He's, he's one of the few people that's out there more than I am. And I'm coming up the trail, and I won't go through all the details, but he's stressed out. And he's alone. He's hiking. I'm riding. So I'd normally just, I mean, we have like a 30-second conversation as I go by him. And we've had a a conversation or two over the last 18 years. But but the Lord, the Lord, through his word today, that that I I preached today, through my study of that passage this week, the Lord has been saying to me, you need to slow down, Mike, literally. And and this guy's name's Carl, and and I don't know where Carl's at spiritually, and and you need to slow down, and, and Carl needs to be your paralytic. So I want, to, I want to pray right now and, and I want you to think, who is your paralytic? Who is it that you need? I'm praying that I'm going to have a conversation with Carl soon about Jesus. Let's, let's bow our heads together and pray that 
for, for each of us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, sometimes it seems confusing. My prayer today is that today would be, uh, today would have been a time where a lot of things maybe came together for, for some who, understanding the Trinity and understanding how the Old Testament speaks about Jesus. We thank you for allowing us to see these things. We thank you for the power of Jesus who, who healed that paralytic, who healed the leper and healed so many. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the greater miracle, which is the salvation, the invisible one, the salvation of souls by faith, by faith in Jesus who died for sins and rose on the third day. And Lord, we know that we are here on this earth right now with a mission of making disciples that includes bringing people to Jesus. So I want to pray for Carl right now, and I pray that across the sanctuary today that there would be silent prayers, names being mentioned of family members, of friends, of neighbors, of colleagues, of co-workers who need Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would be seeing some of them in our baptistry, that we would be seeing and hearing testimonies of them coming to know Jesus. Give us patience if some of us need that in demonstrating the gospel and being loving and, and, and serving those who need to see the gospel, but also give us boldness to actually get to the gospel and to communicate it with love and joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.